Blog Talk Radio. Yeah, this is your boy, G-Ski Rocks. And this is going out to the lovely, lovely women of the world. I know sometimes you have to make a hard decision. But I want you to think about
welcome to Pro-Life Fridays Radio. It is Friday, August 2nd, 2013. It is a significant week. August marks the week, the month. My kids go back to school. Hallelujah. Um, they may not be saying hallelujah, but I'm saying hallelujah at least a little bit. My older one starts middle school this year and it's it's hard as a mom i'm thinking i just started sending her to kindergarten the other day and now she's gonna be 12 and um you know the day i sent her to kindergarten i was thinking i just gave birth to her and i just brought her home from the hospital what's going on here so it is hard but it is good Um, we feed our kids so they grow and they get older. That's kind of how it works. Welcome to the show. I am your host, Letitia Wong. On the line with me is Thomas Smith. Thomas and I both caught something nasty this week. It's mine not as bad as his, but we will be in prayer for him and for just just the illness that seems to be striking the PLFR uh, staff. This week, we also, I also want to give a shout out to Melissa, who is celebrating her sister's one year anniversary of being sober from drugs. So I want to shout praise God, hallelujah, for the blessing that is, and I wish her and her sister the best uh, from here on out. That is just the greatest news. So let us start, start off with prayer. Our Heavenly Father, I just lift up the PLFR coast this week. Uh, We've had big weeks. We've had sniffles. We have had coughs. We have had difficult times. And Lord, I pray that you would intervene in our daily lives, in our real life daily lives outside of this broadcast, and provide for us. Um, I pray for Thomas specifically that you show up in a mighty way and provide for his needs. Um, I don't want to forget ever to pray daily for his needs and praise you for the blessing that he is and that you have worked blessings through him on this world. We always talk about, especially liberals, making the world a better place. I believe you have preserved his life to make the world a better place with his story. So I pray that you bless him and you provide for him and you continue to cradle him in the hand of your loving care and provision. And I praise heaven, the heavens and the earth and the creation for what it is and how things have turned out that you have saved Melissa's sister from a life of drug dependency, Lord. And I realize this is going to be a long-term commitment for her with daily struggles. But, Lord, I thank you for the success she's had so far. It is by your hand and your strength that she has come this far. I pray that you bring her further still. And I pray for our guests who are coming in on short notice today. I pray that... You speak through them and through their stories, too, and their valuable lessons and wisdom that they can share with our PLFR audience and just bless the time we have. 
In Jesus' great name, amen. Well, our scripture, as it is all the time for the show, is Deuteronomy chapter 30, verse 19, which reads, I call heaven and earth as witnesses today against you that I have set before you life and death, blessing and cursing. Therefore, choose life that both you and your descendants may live. And that is the word of the Lord. So um, it has been a high, high news week, and I really did not know what to choose to highlight. Um, It's so hard every week. But one of the things that kind of crossed my path this week was just the repeated stories about how Obamacare, as wonderful and awesome as Democrats tell us it is, is now being rejected on a practical level by almost everybody who said it was a good thing. Yeah. So, what I'm going to talk about is just how, trace back to you the story of Obamacare, and it, I really should title it something along a Michael Moore movie title. You know, Obamacare, a love story. I would love, you know, I think I'm going to go with that. Obamacare, a love story. And it goes a little bit like this. We used to talk about Obamacare as you don't want the socialized light medicine because it's been tried in other countries and it's failed. And Democrats in Washington and President Obama were like, "Oh, poo-poo, poo-poo! Don't, don't poo-poo on our plan. It's awesome. It's so awesome." Well, first of all, we heard back last year saying uh, that, <clears throat> excuse me, that Congress tried to exempt them themselves from Obamacare. The Democrats in Congress specifically tried to exempt themselves from Obamacare. Unions, private unions like SEIU and the AFL-CIO were applying for exemptions from Obamacare, and they got five-year, five-year exemptions from Obamacare. And that some public sector unions were starting to agitate, saying maybe we don't want Obamacare either. That story came out in March, that there are a lot of public sector unions that did not want Obamacare. Then, the next in the saga of Obamacare, is that we heard last month, that the Obama administration is going to delay the implementation of a major portion of Obamacare, specifically the uh, HHS mandate, for one more year. Why? If it's so damn good, do it now, do it today. Oh, but no. Instead, there were some unforeseen or hitherto unannounced difficulties before not unannounced difficulties 
with Obamacare that merited its delay. Oh, gee, I wonder what it was. Now, finally, today, what comes across my desk is that a lot of public, oh, two things, public sector unions. I said they were thinking about before, thinking about not having, uh, participating in Obamacare. But two things that are, that are happening. First of all, public sector unions now are rethinking their desire to implement Obamacare. Two, um, no, make, it up, make that three things. The IRS chief, the IRS chief, let me check that for you. Um, congressional staffers, Obama told congressional staffers this week that they may not have to participate in the Obamacare exchanges themselves. Oh, really? Members of Congress, members of congressional staff may be exempt from participating in Obamacare. Next, irony of ironies, an Obamacare call center, a call center that is specifically set up to answer questions, answer public questions about Obamacare, or I'd like to call it health dictatorship, health control, socialized medicine, socialized health care, answer questions about Obamacare, itself is not offering the employees who will take the calls and work for this call center health care plans under Obamacare. The very entity that was that is designed to answer public questions about Obamacare is itself not going to offer Obamacare to its part-time employees who were duped into applying to, for their jobs because they were told that it would be full-time employment. And guess what happens when you have full-time employment? You get to have Obamacare, which is why they wanted the job. And surprise, surprise, not a surprise to me or any conservative that could see this coming, they're not getting it because all of the jobs had been slashed to part-time status. Why? Not because they want a whole bunch of part-time people, but because they don't want to implement Obamacare. Jeez, this is so awesome in the minds of the liberals who wanted Obamacare. I think the Obama administration doesn't want to ruin the fairy tale illusion about how good it is by actually implementing it. That way, it can stay a brand spanking sparkly fantasy in our minds about how awesome it is, because if we ever experience it, it might tarnish the finish. Now, here's a little history lesson about socialized medicine, how we got here from there way back when. 
people are running away from Obamacare, but why? As I've said before about Obamacare, it is the largest step towards socialized medicine the U.S. has ever had. I first learned about socialized medicine in high school when more than one of my high school teachers started talking about how much they liked the, let me air quote this, free health care that was available in Great Britain, for example. I think it was my junior high, my junior year English teacher bubbled about how she was on a vacay in some part of Britain, Great Britain, and either she or a relative or a friend traveling with her needed some medical help in a hospital. She said that after she had been seen and taken care of, they left without having to pay for their care. Not a dime. They just got up and left. They said bye. So to her, it was, ah, the brilliance of socialized health care. Everything is free of charge. Whee! <coughs> Excuse me. Um, the second teacher who talked about this just hailed the virtues of having a collective fund uh -huh, uh, tax revenue pay for everyone's health care needs, kind of like kind of like how insurance companies work. The financial risk of whatever you're trying to insure, property for instance, <coughs> excuse me, I am so sorry, <coughs> is spread out among many people. So when Joe Citizen needs an operation, all of Joe's fellow citizens have paid into the collective cookie jar, as it were, and Joe can have that operation without incurring the full cost himself. Sounds grand, ain't it grand? The problem with this is that the system is a fantasy. It's a pink unicorn living on an emerald isle with pots of gold at the end of the eternal rainbow. So let's look at it in terms of insurance. How can insurance companies afford to pay for the value of your vehicle, for instance, if it gets totaled, yet you only pay a few dollars a day for that coverage? It's because the insurance company has a lot of customers each paying a few dollars a day, and get this, not everybody will total their car. In fact, the number of people that actually need their auto insurance company to pay for major auto events, buku dollars, I mean, versus the number of customers who buy insurance is low. How do I know that? If it weren't low, that insurance company wouldn't be in business. This is what happened after Hurricane Katrina struck the Gulf Coast. A number of insurance companies went out of business. Because all of a sudden, this one-time influx of claims that required them to pay for major damages, structural homes and property and cars, etc., one-time influx of everybody in a certain area needing major help would end that business for good. And a lot of insurance companies did go belly up. There was no way to pay all of these claims and pay for everybody's needs and yet maintain a business. 
of selling insurance. Well, now let's look at socialized medicine. The more financially accessible a doctor is, the more likely people are going to go. That's not a bad thing. I know some liberal out there is just waiting in the bushes to pounce on whatever I say. And they're going to be like, ah, accessibility is bad. No. No, I, I know you're out there. Again, accessibility is not a bad thing. I, as a conservative, believe it or not, want people to get the medical care they need. But when we're talking about financial accessibility, there is such a thing as utilizing services that cost a large amount of money unnecessarily. Liberals, of all people, know this, which is why the FLOTUS, when she was working in Chicago with the hospital, set up inferior care centers to push off low-income people out of the emergency rooms to take care of them, which actually didn't take care of them as much as not take care of them. She designed a system and was paid over $300,000 a year for the hospital to push people out of the hospital into separate care centers for uh, emergency room patients who really ought to have been in the hospital. See, liberals know these things. They just find a way to mask whatever atrocious behavior they show toward people in need as compassion. That's the true genius of liberalism, is the, the ability to lie so well. But I digress. Anyway, as a conservative, I want people with genuine need to see a doctor, to see their health care specialist, to get whatever help they need. The problem is when a liberal gets involved in the system and says, I can devise a better way of paying for the services that a person needs by making everybody pay for it. But when you make everybody pay for it, everybody's accessible. And then some people don't have to pay for it if they're on f from medical welfare. Oh, yes, we have that. I, I know it's not called medical welfare. It's called Medicaid and Medicare, in which people pay a smaller fraction of what they need and use more than what they can pay for people, supposedly the rich, are footing the bill for the majority of the care. Well, the rich get sick just as often as the poor do. And what happens when widespread financial accessibility occurs in an entire country? Let's look at Massachusetts. It's health care is essentially a microcosm of what Obamacare is. And here by the year 2013, and it was talked about all in 2011, because Mitt Romney was the governor of Massachusetts and had signed 
uh, what do they call it, Romney hair, into law, and it became implemented. Had a great failure by 2012, it was. It failed the people of Massachusetts, and not even the liberals can stand by and hide behind their shame-faced policies and say that it worked. And now we want to try it on a large scale here with Obamacare implementation on this country. Oh, but not yet. And we're supposed to think it's awesome. It has never worked in any country. Let me tell you a little bit about Great Britain. The healthcare system in Great Britain sucks up one-sixth of the British economy. One-sixth. I'm pretty sure that the population of Great Britain is about one-sixth of the United States. Yet, by in proportion to their overall GDP, it takes up such a huge bite of their economy just to provide a bit of care to its ta tax-paying citizens. And how well is it working out for them? Story after story I could share with you here on the air. I will spare you today because I have to call them all up. We have cases where people are denied the medical care they need. They are denied surgeries. They are left in waiting rooms for a much longer time than they need medical care. They are denied medications that are particularly good, uh, useful for fighting cancer. They are not offered uh, experimental drugs that will help them. They are not allowed to... Um, they are not allowed to have life-extending care in many cases. Great Britain's healthcare system is, is actively practicing a passive form of euthanasia, which is, in America speak, it's DNR. It is do not resuscitate, do not give care for people who are dying but have not expressed any desire to move to hospice and die without medical care. Doctors and hospital staff are making life and death decisions for the very sick, the very weak and the elderly, and the people in Great Britain have no rights to fight against that. If the medical care system if the staff in hospitals, healthcare facilities, deem that a patient is too sick to care for any longer, they will simply refuse further treatment. It tells you stories of, I mean, one in particular, of a 20-year-old young man they thought was so brain damaged they didn't want to save him. He he literally was dying not because of his injuries, but because of their lack of care. I think finally he was rescued. His mother had intervened and got some kind of care for him, and he recovered. 
but no thanks to the hospital staff. And if you think that's an isolated instance, let me take you to Kermit Gosnell's House of Cat Feces and all the other ones that are just like it and tell you how isolated those are. It's not isolated. So lessons we learned here that we've learned before in other countries. Say Canada is a great example. Great Britain is another example. How socialized medicine does not work. It never has and it never will. There's a story um, on, I believe it's in Weekly Standard, that has a lot of the, has the administration afraid to implement Obamacare in a way, and they describe it as we don't want it to be implemented to look like a third world country. Ironically, it is a lot of third world countries that have socialized medicine, and they remain third world countries because of socialized medicine. And I really don't understand how, uh, I, think, I think America is slowly waking up to the fact that hey, Obamacare may not be all that's cracked up to be. But it has certainly taken a long time. And it's certainly true what Nancy Pelosi had said, that we had to pass it in order to find out what's in it. Unfortunately, that's also liberal, uh, a liberal way of saying, yeah, we did it to you and it's too late to back out now. Well, I certainly hope Congress can fix that. If they want to get out of it so much, they've got to get us all out of it. Part of our Obamacare is uh, that we're going to catch on the other side of this break and join our guest, is how Obamacare, even without implementing anything at all, will aid in the distribution and the widespread abuse of Plan B drugs. Oh, how? Find out just a minute. Pro-Life Fridays Radio. Society can prevent those who are manifestly unfit from continuing their kind. Three generations of imbeciles are enough. I do not join in the belief that the African is our equal in brain or in heart. We are paying for and even submitting to the dictates of an ever-increasing, unceasingly spawning class of human beings who never should have been born at all. The laws of nature require the obliteration of the unfit. The best way to hate a nigger is to hate him before he is born. American eugenicists were routinely praising Hitler 
and holding up the Nazi eugenics program as a model for the United States to copy. Non-white races must be excluded from America. The red and black races, if left to themselves, revert to a savage or semi-savage state in a short time. The only way possible of decreasing Negro population is by means of controlling fertility. Birth control facilities could be extended relatively more to Negroes than to whites, since Negroes are more concentrated in the lower income and education classes. We hope that the restraint of population growth can come about through voluntary means. But if it does not, involuntary methods will be used. There should be national sterilization for certain dysgenic types of our population who are being encouraged to breed and would die out for the government not feeding them. If this movement continues, we soon may be accused of fighting poverty by eliminating the poor and overcoming hunger by removing the hungry. For all their failures, what the eugenics movement had accomplished was to lay the foundation for the next phase of their plan. And this is where they would find the success that they had been chasing for over 100 years. And we are back with Pro-Life Fridays Radio. I am your host, Letitia Wong. On air with me is our wonderful guest for this uh, hour. She, she's just joining us for a few minutes. Uh, I, let me lead, the, lead up to this. Uh, if you have a question, the number to call in is 760-542-3907 if you would like to talk to me or ask a question from our guest, for, of our guest. Um, on the line with me is... Thomas likes to call her Chaplain Aisha Coots. I kind of, and I don't know if I'm saying that right. A am I saying your name right? <laughs> uh, close. Uh, Croix. Chaplain Aisha Croix. Okay. But okay, sorry, Croix. Croix. It's all good. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. <laughs> and thank you for coming on the show at such notice, uh, such short notice, because we had a couple of guests um, and, and our host. Dropping like flies uh, I'm not, I've, today, so it's one of these days where we're just trying to scramble, saying, "Is there anybody healthy enough to go on air with us today?" Um, <laughs> no <so>. problem. <laughs> uh, I was struck today because you came out with a a, a very heartfelt and um, open admission of your teenage abortion experience. And the reason I wanted to ask you on the show today is because um, I realized that it couldn't have been very easy for you. Um, we we hear a lot of stories of women who are so secretive about having had abortions, they will never admit to it for most of their lives. Mm-hmm. And so tell us a little bit about how you've come to this point of um, not just uh, dealing with the abortion, you know, and its aftermath, but also being able to talk about it with other people. Um, well, actually, being able to talk about that's a, a little bit different. Um, I, I have had I had one abortion, um, and then I also took the morning after pill and had an ectopic pregnancy from that experience. I'm, I'm assuming it's because I took the morning after pill. But with my 
uh, youngest child, I was also going to have um, an abortion, and I wound up not doing it. But that experience, and I was a Christian, um, and I loved the Lord, and I knew, you know, what I was doing, you know, fornication, all of those things were wrong to begin with, but um, then when I got pregnant, of course, I didn't want people to know, and so I was going to have an abortion and all of that, so there's a whole bunch that goes into that, but it did wind up happening. I met with some people um, locally, Rescue Rochester, uh, Operation Save America, it's like a sect of them, and they had helped me to save my child, and through that, um, she's eight years old today. They loved us both and were here. And it was that experience, actually, that allowed me the ability to talk about not only my previous abortions, but um, why I'm so vocal today. Um, again, there's a whole gamut that, that runs that, that God just touched my heart where it became that burden of saying, well, if I can share my story and it saves just one child or saves just one woman, the pain and agony that I had to live with and the shame that does come along with that, then I'm willing to do it. Uh, I'm willing to do and be whatever the Lord wants me to do and be. And that just happened to be what he said to me. And I started doing a lot of pre- and post-abortive counseling. I don't want to say on the DL, but, you know, more on, a, you know, through the church and stuff like that. Uh, through Rescue Rochester, and them saying to me, hey, you know, we have a lady that we would like you to speak to as well, um, kind of how they did to uh, to me. So that's what allowed me the ability to. And then from there, I've just become very pro-life and been more active in the pro-life community, and um, that's the short of it. All right. Um, before I ask you what you do today, uh, in addition to all this this um wonderful reaching out to to women and girls who are post abortive and hopefully not yet abortive um, tell us a little bit about what was going through your mind uh, did did anybody ever tell you what what life would be like after you had an abortion? Oh, absolutely. Um, they told me it would be wonderful. It's just like any other procedure, and life would be great. <laughs> I would not have my problem anymore. And mm. that's what I expected, and that is not what I got. <laughs> um, wow. I think that is, you know, the big lie, I guess. Of course, nobody told me that, you know, I would have this um eating, gnawing, feeling in me. And that's, you know, one of the things that we talk about is when you are contemplating having an abortion and all that goes along with that, um, even when they do tell you, hey, um, this is just a blob of flesh or how do I want to say that? You know, even when they're trying to explain and say, you know, tell you that it's no big deal, as a woman, you do know hey, there's not something quite right, even going through the experience, and even at 14, I knew it wasn't quite right, but because, you know, my mom was telling me it was the best thing for me, my sister, yeah. I was going to ruin my life, 
Um, and I was rather far along the first time. Um, so, um, you know, I was in my second trimester, close to my third. So it wasn't like, you know, I, you know, it was, you know, and again, I can look at the pictures today and, you know, and you have to deal with that. Go, wow, that's what I did to my child. But, mm-hmm. you know, afterwards you realize that something is missing and that you were lied to. And you're trying to struggle with your conscience that's trying to tell you that you didn't, that you actually killed a baby, but you were told beforehand that it was no big deal. And so you're trying to figure out and reconcile those emotions with yourself. And oftentimes you don't understand it, you know, again, because they told you that it was nothing more than a blob, that it was just, you know, it's nothing. So it's a very difficult place for women who their whole lives, you know, I grew up in a very liberal home, so I didn't have that, you know, thinking that I was doing anything wrong. It's just the way it is. That's what had to be done. So there was a lot of drugs and alcohol and different things that were involved that, you know, promiscuous behavior that escalated even, you know, mm. uh, you know, but I came from a very abusive home and, you know, so there are a lot of other things that were going on, but it wasn't like, you know, I thought I was doing something wrong. That was until later on in life when I um, became Christian that I knew, you know, again, when I was going to have the abortion this last time, I knew I was going to do something wrong, but I was still willing to do it because mm-hmm. I knew God would forgive me and I had rationalized a whole bunch of things in my head. So I can see mm-hmm. it from the other um, side of things as well. Wow. So how much pressure were, was put on you to go and have an abortion? You mentioned your mother and your sister how how difficult was that? I mean, was there anybody that told you that maybe this wasn't such a good idea? Um, no, there was not. Um, of course, you know it was, it was very uh, secret all the way from start to finish. My I had, you know, again every situation is different, but of course I had I had been living with my grandmother. Um, and she was a Christian and, you know, she didn't know I was, you know, having sex or any of that kind of stuff. Old black woman and very, you know, very Christian. (laughs) Um, Mm -hmm. and my mom was actually in prison at the time and I didn't live with my sister, but when I came down being pregnant, that's when I called my mom and my sister and I didn't know what to do. I didn't want to tell my grandmother because I didn't, you know, want her to be upset with me and, say anything to me about it, so that's who I leaned on. I do believe that if I would have told my grandmother, though, that I would have had the other side of things, that that um, she would have, you know, said to me, hey, don't, don't do this, and, you know, you, you did wrong the first time around by um, getting pregnant and asking this way but let's not compound the issue. But that's not what happened. Uh, my mom and my sister, they just told me, they said, you know, I went to go live with my sister, and she told me um, they all did. And, and I was, quote, unquote, in love with the boy, you know. <laughs> so I was definitely, um, you know, saying, oh, I love this boy. This is our baby out of love is what I was thinking in my head. But my family was telling me, you're 14, you're going to ruin your life. What kind of life can you have? You can't provide for this. You know, all the things that we hear. 
And those are the people that you trust and count on. So that's what I believed. And I didn't have the other side of the story. Mm. Did you believe that well, the, the father of the baby, uh, did he ever know? Sadly, he did not. Uh, not even okay. to this day. Actually, I don't know where he is, but um, we did talk a little bit here and there um, after I had moved because I had to move from where I was living with my grandmother to my sister, and then my sister took me to go have the abortion. Um, and at that time, again, we're talking 25 years ago, to have a second um, trimester pregnancy in, I mean, abortion in New York, you had not all abortionists did it. So I had to travel. Mm-hmm. We went by train and stuff, and we had to set up a special thing. It was, you know, very traumatic. I remember even in the... Um, after we got to the abortion clinic, it was Planned Parenthood, after we got there, um, and they had, you know, done the preliminary, everything. I remember the moment where I was sitting in this room. It was very, it was small and cold, and the little bench was like this metal bench thing, and they just were waiting for the medicine to take hold. And I remember laying there and all of a sudden saying, I don't want to do this, and, Mm. you know, going to the door and, and, um, you know, trying to find the nurse and then finding the nurse and saying, you know, or flagging them down because you're in this room all alone. They just leave you there and saying, I changed my mind. I don't want to do this. And they said, it's too late. Um, and I know wow. today, you know, that it's not too late. But, you know, and then right. at that point I had to lay back down and deal with it, you know. And I said, okay, you know, it's too late. This is what I'm doing. And, and again, you know, during that whole process, you know, and, and, it, and there was never anything in me before this that would have thought, you know, I was raised saying that it's no big deal. It's just an abortion, you know. So right, right. Um, I think it's instinctual for a woman to know there is something wrong, even no matter how young or how old you are, that what you are doing. And that's why they said it's a very personal decision. Absolutely. It's a very personal decision. Right. And that's why... If it wasn't so personal, then we would know there was nothing wrong, right? If it wasn't such an agonizing decision, even the left will tell you, oh, it's so agonizing for these. Well, why would right. it be agonizing? If it's really just well, a blob of flesh, then it should be no big deal, right? Right. I cut my toenails. I cut my toenails. It's not like I have to agonize over whether or not I'm going to hurt my toenails <laughs> or what's right. going to happen. No, I just right. flip it right. off. How did they treat you? Yes, Thomas. Yes, Thomas. Just a second. Chaplain Aisha, I am going to, with you on, I am going to bring on a young lady. I think you guys are Facebook friends as well. I'm not sure. But you all have similar stories. And he was going to be the guest next week until he heard part of your story. So would that be all right? Can you stick around for a little bit longer? just to hear her story because it is powerful. It's kind of, um, yeah, it's powerful. So can you stick around a little bit longer? Uh, yeah. Chaplain Aisha? Okay. Yes. Okay. Hi, Shan. Uh, Are you there? <clears throat> let me, yes, let me hi. Hi, everybody. Hi. This, welcome to Pro-Life Fridays Radio. Thank you. Um, well, let, so me let, her, let, me, let me give her a proper okay. introduction. 
let me give All her right. a proper introduction. This young woman, she she has a blog called Pretty Blessing, and she tells her story. It's 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 a story of of forgiveness and healing out of tragedy. And she and she is a very dear friend of mine. And just like you, Letitia, just like you, Chaplain Aisha, and just like me, this young lady puts her money where her mouth is when it comes to standing up for the abortion issue. So, Shannon, if you can just share um, share your story a little bit and kind of how it relates to Chaplain Aisha. Of course. First of all, I'd like to thank you for that awesome introduction. <laughs> but, um, of course, all my story um, is almost as similar as Chaplain Aisha's. I was 17 um, at the time that my mother took me to have an abortion. Um, I'd been sexually active uh, with the guy that I was dating, and I became pregnant. Um, at that time, my mother um, did not want me to have the child for her reasons. Uh, One reason that I know that she told me uh, was because I should not have been having sex. I should never have gotten pregnant. So that was one of her reasons for taking me to get an abortion. Another reason was, um, you know, she was moving forward in life, moving to a new state, had gotten a better job, and she was not going to take an extra mouth to feed to a new state with her. So... You know, I was stuck in a situation where, you know, I was dependent on my mother, so I, you know, did what she wanted me to do. Um, it was a very difficult situation for me, and it was not talked about in front of me, but it was talked about amongst other people in my family, which made it a little bit harder because for everyone to say that it's not wrong, there isn't anything wrong with doing it, you know, why are we so secretive about it? Why don't we talk about it in my presence? <laughs> so I did deal with a lot as far as after that abortion. And I know a lot of people say that abortion doesn't affect a woman. I know some people who have told me on different social networks who are pro-choice or pro aborts and, you know, they've had abortion. They say, my abortion, I don't regret it. And you know, they call me a liar for speaking out about the effects of abortions on not only women but men as well. But and and it does right. with my right. abortion, I went through a lot of different issues such as bulimia, um, um, aggression, anger, self mutilation. I mean, several different emotions that I did not know how to handle at that time. Even after, you know, a, a year later, I'd become pregnant with, i you know, gotten married and became pregnant again. And the physical, physical issues that come after abortions are, you know, low weight with your, you know, future pregnancies. Right. My daughter low, was premature. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, my daughter was premature. She was born at three pounds, thirteen ounces, and it it just causes a lot of problems. That people pro-choice and pro-aborts, which they're all, they're the same. I'll say pro-aborts. 
because I don't feel that there is anything, any such thing as pro-choice. If you're pro-choice, to me, you are pro-abort. Mm-hmm. And that's just how I feel about it. But a lot of pro-abort say that, oh, there's no future issues. You can go forward and have more children and et cetera, et cetera. And, and that's not true. It's a very effective situation to be in. It affects you for years. I know I went 16 years later moving forward in life just going through issues that had to do with the remnants of my abortion. Wow. So um, now, were you also told um, that after you had an abortion, your your life would be better afterward and all your problems would go away because all your problems were in your womb? And if just got rid of what was in your womb, everything would be okay? Oh, of course. Of course. I was told that um, when my mother was actually searching um because at the time we lived in Little Rock, Arkansas, she was searching um, for an abortion, an abort, abortion center, and um, mm-hmm. she had, I guess, gotten some information from a young lady, and she told her where to go, and oh, it's going to be simple. It's you know she's, it's going to you know basically take care of the quote unquote problem, and she'll go forward in life, and of course she'll be able to have more children, and everything will be okay. You know, but no one ever warns you about the emotional effects that it has on you. No one prepares you for that. And and tell us a little bit about what what your experience was really like after you had an abortion. I mean, not only did you have a low birth weight baby following an abortion, but, you know, what, what about you as a person? As a person, you you never really get past it. You can you can suppress your thoughts, but something mm-hmm. will trigger those thoughts and bring what you've been through and what you did. It, it'll it'll all resurface, and not only that, because of that spirit of abortion that was implanted in me you know, by my mother and other people, oh, it's okay, it's going to be all right. You know, I, as, you know, other women went forward to have other abortions. Mm-hmm. You know, sometimes it just doesn't stop at that one because you feel like, okay, I made it through that first one. Um, you feel like you're okay because you, you convince yourself that you're okay and nothing happened, I'm I'm quote, unquote, healthy, you know, and and really you're not. You're not healthy. You, I went forward and I had other abortions. Right. Did um, did did your family, did those who encouraged you to have an abortion, did they talk about it afterwards with you at all? Oh no, it it no. never. Um, it's never a conversation when I you know would try to bring it up, you know, in conversations with my mother. Um, it's it's. It's very hard to get anything out of her. Why uh, did it? Why did you take me? Why did you do it? Do you not understand what I went through when I was in that room as a 17-year-old? I'll say child. As a 17-year-old right. child, you know, laying on that bed, stretched out, 
even though I was under anesthesia and half sleep, I could still hear the vacuum and just to know that my baby was being ripped from my body. Even now, at the age that I am now, 17, almost 18 years later, I cannot stand to hear a vacuum cleaner. Wow. So it really does affect you as a person. It does. For both of you, Chaplain Aisha and and Shan, um, both of you, um, did anybody offer to counsel you to deal with your emotions afterward, or were you expected just to forget about it? Did anybody offer you help that uh, that offered you to that told you to have an abortion? No, um, no. Um, after you know, afterwards it was just. That's it. Um, it wasn't until years later, like I said, um, even after when I had my first child when I was 25, my first living child, um, mm-hmm. is when I first, you know, I mean, I, I, I'm, I think I, my situation is probably a little bit unique as far as how I had to come to deal, come to terms with uh, my abortion. I did do it pretty much alone. I do not recommend that <laughs> to anyone. I think mm-hmm. that they should go, you know, like these pregnancy centers that we have today all over the country are a godsend, and uh, they do a lot of post-supportive counseling and stuff. And, you know, it's all for free. And when I do it with women now, um, it took me a very long time not only to quote-unquote get over it, but um, to work through it with God and to be forgiven and set free to be able to have that spirit of freedom to where I can talk about it today. And um, as the other young lady that was on right now um, said, you know, I mean, most of the time I am fine. You know, I mean, I, you know, people are like, wow, you know, I mean, I don't, I don't think that it's brave to be able to talk about it. I think it's our duty as post-abortive women to talk about it. Uh, there's nothing brave about it. It just is what it is. We have an obligation to the rest of society to talk about it. Um, but there are most of the times I can speak about it now because I've done it so many times where it doesn't really affect me. You know, I don't tear up and stuff like that, not because I don't feel it, but just because I'm, you know, I'm like, okay, I can do this. But there are times, especially like uh, whether it be pictures, or just certain things that will happen. The last time I can remember, the last time it happened was um, there's a saying that said, you know, um, having an abortion doesn't make me unpregnant. Un- doesn't make you unpregnant, just the mother of a dead child. I was forgiven and set free at that time, but that rocked my world. And I just, you know, I mean, I did. I I had to go back into a cocoon, and I was crying. And this is like, you know, that, you know, being able to grieve your child, I think, is a sure. very important step in this. N- giving your child a name, going and just really recognizing, I'm going to see my child in heaven. And, and not forgetting about it, not pretending like it doesn't exist is, is a very important step. But, again, it, I did a lot of this on my own with the Lord just because I came to Christianity on my own. I, di- I didn't have, like, a strong Christian family. I'm the first uh, Christian in my family. That's my grandmother who died. Um, but, mm-hmm. you know, my mom, my sister, my brothers, all of them, I'm the only one that's Christian. So, you know, I was kind of alone in this walk and how they hated me and, some still do to this day, and, you know, my family spit on me before, you know, just mentioning the name of Jesus, those demons come up, so it was more of a situation where they're just, you know, you had it, it's done, get over it, 
move on. We don't talk about it, and that's it, you know. Um, and now when I talk about it, you know, I, I, I am, I talk, my mom knows that I talk about this. Um, me and her still to this day, we haven't really talked about it, not in depth, um, but she's going to be coming up to visit me actually next one week from today, and there's a lot of things that we have to talk about because there's a lot of uh, sexual abuse that I suffered and just different things that I know that the Lord wants me to talk about, but I also know how it's going to affect my family, and I just kind of have to sit down with them and say, listen, you know, these are things that have to be talked about because there's a lot of hurting women out there, and we wow. have to be able as a nation to talk about these things and be free to so that it can stop happening. And as long as we continue as a nation to pretend like these things are all okay and nobody, you know, the dirty little secrets that we keep, you know, just like in the black community, right, you can talk amongst ourselves at the table, you know, quote, unquote, about all the things that are happening in the black community, but as soon as you want to say something publicly, everybody, you know, uh, your community wants to uh, bash you, but you're like, but we all know what's going on. It's the same thing with abortion. We know what's going on, and we have an obligation to start speaking about it. And the more that starts happening, you know, abortion is the only surgery nobody wants to see. We don't see it on bones, right? You can see all the other gory stuff, but you don't see one about abortion. Right. Nobody wants right. to see that surgery, you know? Right. Well, I, certainly we are I'll be praying for any conversation that you want to have with your with your mom, I pray that, you know, God will be in the middle of that and uh, opening some eyes and opening some doors and hearts and softening some hearts. I definitely will be praying for that. Oh, I thank you. I'm sure we will need it, you know. Amen. Thank you. And um, let, me, let me ask you, Sean, um, how were you, you know, how were you treated after you had an abortion? I mean, it's, I think it's easy for other people, since it's not their child and they didn't have to go through that abortion, to walk away and say, "Okay, I'm, you know, I'm done with this." Um, were you expected just to get over it and, and not talk about it anymore? Oh, of course, I was um, totally expected to just get over it and sweep it under the rug and, and go forward with your life, but. People don't understand, with with abortion, most of the time, everything in your life going forward that you try to do becomes aborted. Mm-hmm. You know, I tried to, you know, begin college, that was aborted. Any relationship, you know, wow. after that that I tried to have, that was aborted. You know, it, it's a cycle, you know, and it, it's ongoing mm-hmm. until, you know, one day, I decided that I was tired, I was exhausted um, spiritually, and I accepted Christ into my life, and I said, you know, no more. From now on, I'm going to speak out because I don't ever want anyone else to go through what I'm going through or to have to hide or suppress what I'm hiding and suppressing. And as Chaplain Aisha said, you know, um, you... You you just expect it not to talk about it, especially in the black community. You know, no one wants to talk about that pink elephant in the room, and right. it's time to do that. It's time to talk about it. It's time to lay it out on the table and discuss it and come up with resolutions for what these women are going through. Now, I as a mom, you know, I have. I have a daughter, I have a son, and if anything happens to them, they go through anything, even if, you know, especially now that my my son is 
older now, but when he was younger, when, when he would just fall down or get a scrape or even now, you know, even if after the Band-Aid is put on and hours later, I will go and ask, well, how, you know, how do you feel? Is it better? And and check on, you know, the, the health of my child and, and ask them how they feel. And we we normally do this with anything. I am I am just struck and I'm fabricated, sorry, that after such a huge procedure like having an abortion, nobody goes back to the the girl who gets the abortion to see if she's okay. She's just <clears throat> expected to move on, and nobody wants to talk about it. No, it, it, I mean, that it is that way. It is totally wow. that way. And I, wow. with my two children now, I mean, I have a daughter who's 15. I have a son who's 11. My son plays mm-hmm. football. And as you said, you know, he will get tackled. And I am almost on the field trying to <laughs> make sure that he's okay. So, you know, just. With you saying that in that comparison, I just could not and can't imagine that my mother, you know, is the way that she is, even to till this day, about it. I'm not sure if there, it's because of embarrassment or because, you know, because you never, as a quote-unquote good mother, want to think that you did any harm to your child. And I always try to bring it out of her. Maybe we can set this out on the table and talk about it, and I can let you know that I forgive you because I do. I honestly do. And I want her to know that so maybe at that point she can also heal and forgive herself. Exactly. Wow. I, I pray, you know, both of you have similar stories and are dealing with family and I think you know it's it's important as part of what we talk about here on Pro-Life Fridays is just is the heart issue and and also you know not just of the women themselves who have had abortions but the families I mean it's not just the woman who has an abortion it's everybody who who that woman's life touches gets roped into it because everybody has some level of consent to the abortion and is responsible for it taking place, especially if nobody speaks out and says, I don't think this is a good idea. I think you need to think about this again. Let's take it, you know, let's let's not uh, rush into getting an abortion. Um, wow. I, or I, even, I'm or even with... Yes? Oh, sorry. No, no I was just going to say, or even... You know, or even, you know, there's so many of these uh, cases, you know, Planned Parenthood and, and stuff, you know, they don't, they aren't even willing to share the other side and talk about, you know, hey, you know, there could be other options for you. It does not have to be just an abortion. You know, there is adoption. I mean, those things aren't even broached. They're not even, no. you know, remotely even spoken about as though, hey, you have another option, and it is, I believe, capitalizing on or pimping these women um, and their pain. You know, you're taking them at the vulnerable time, and again, 
um, kind of like, uh, you know, Sean had said, you know, I mean, even something as simple as getting your tonsils out. They give you ice cream afterwards. And people are still coming in and being, how are you feeling? There is no how are you feeling after an abortion. You know, nobody comes to you. You know, and I mean, this is the smallest things, you know, as you said, you know, I mean, it, it, it just would, you would think it'd be common sense. And you're like, you can't even offer me a kind word, but everybody wants to sweep it under the rug. And that's how we should know as a nation there's something wrong. If you don't even want to say, how are you? Is everything okay? Then there has to be something that's wrong because you know something's going to come back. They said, you know, well, actually I'm kind of feeling kind of funny. I don't know why this is. And nobody wants to talk about it. And, you know, again, we have so many solutions. We have so many good solutions. We know what the problem is. We know what the solution is. But nobody's willing to talk about it because it's a lot of money on the line. Exactly. The eugenicist is entrenched in our society, and we have allowed it. And I blame not only, you know, and, again, not only do I blame myself, you know, even for my own abortion, I'm like, regardless of whatever, I could have said no I know I was 14, but it doesn't matter. You know, we have to take ownership. But more so on top of it, Christians, the church, have laid down on their job, and they are derelict in their duties as being ambassadors to Christ. And the church needs to wake up and rise up and start speaking out and no longer allowing this to happen on their watch. And that is the biggest tragedy of it all is to watch the church of Jesus Christ. Amen. That is so correct. That is so correct. Um, And, in fact, we are, I am planning a a whole show that has to deal with um, the church's apathy toward abortion. And it is, um, we're going to go through all of the excuses, all of the rationalizations, and leave no stone unturned um, in that because it is time. It is really tiny, and it's not a black church issue or white church issue or an evangelical or Protestant. It is an every church issue. Yet, especially the ones, especially the ones that that don't affirm life. They are pro-choice, pro-abortion churches. Those are the ones that are going to be called into account uh, so much more because they they at the same time want to profess the name of Christ. Um, so I'm going to, if if any, if either of you want to stay on, I'm going to take a break. Uh, this is going to be a short show for us. If you have any uh, closing remarks, I'm going to take them. Um, otherwise, thank you for being on the Pro-Life Fridays Radio. I'm going to take a very short break and come right back. You're listening to Pro-Life Fridays Radio. If you'd like to call in with a comment or a question real quick, um, taking calls, the number to call in is 760 We will be right back. Now I'm 
we had a whole plan that sold abortions, and it was called sex education. Break down their natural modesty, separate them from their parents and their values, and become the sex expert in their life so they turn to us. When we would give them a low-dose birth control pill, they would get pregnant on or a defective condom. Our goal was three to five abortions from every girl between the ages of 13 and 18. The multitudes of people that have been hurt by abortion, it's just unfathomable. That abortion is really, to me, the ultimate exploitation of women. It is so shameful and secretive that many women don't tell anybody that they've had an abortion. They won't say anything for 20, 30, 40, 55 years. They're so traumatized with silence. U.S. Senate report states, physicians, biologists, and other scientists agree that conception marks the beginning of the life of a human being, a being that is alive and is a member of the human species. There is an overwhelming agreement on this point in countless medical, biological, and scientific writings. Planned Parenthood is expanding now. They're building gigantic abortion clinics in anticipation of socialized medicine. There's a lot of money involved. We never would take personal checks. We always encourage the ladies to bring cash. Why is that? So, a lot, you don't have to report cash, friend. When you're fighting for your life, you need to know what you're fighting for. And if what you're fighting for is life, how do you destroy a life in an effort to fight that fight? fighting so hard to save myself that I'll kill someone else to get that. I recognized I'd been involved in the death of 35,000 babies. And the truth has really come out about what abortion does to women, let alone the unborn baby, our dead babies. It will be over. And we're back on Pro-Life Fridays Radio. Um, I still have uh, one guest left. Uh, one guest had to um, leave us. That's okay. We kept her long over uh, what I had said we were going to keep her. So we are here back on the air. Um, uh, who do I have here? Sean? Shan. Shannon. Oh, Shan. It's Shannon. Please, if you have any final words, um, we're going to have you back again next week. So um to share your story because I I firmly believe that America needs to know what women go through when they when they get an abortion and then their life afterwards. I think that you were told and Chaplain Aisha was told and, and countless thousands and thousands and hundreds of thousands of women have been told a complete lie about what abortion is supposed to do for you. Um, So, you know, if you have anything last to say before we wrap up the show, um, you are welcome to. Go ahead. Well, first and foremost, I want to thank you for having me. And it's it's a really tough road to go down, but I want, you know, all women to know that this is not a road of recovery, that you have to go down alone. 
even if your family is not supportive and and not helping in that situation, there are plenty of people out here who will, such as myself, there are several, you know, abortion recovery uh, programs in your cities, in your state, you know, that you can go to for that, that healing there. Protestant, Catholic, uh, Christian, um, recovery, pro- abortion recovery programs that could get you, you know, in and put you in the right direction. It's a long, long, but it makes it so much better when you have Christ and you have that moral support and someone holding your hand all the way through. I know that I attended an abortion recovery program, and it really helped me. It got me to the point where I'm able to talk about it, where I'm able to help others, and I'm no longer uh, ashamed. I no longer feel guilty, and I'm no longer going to compromise the gospel to hide what I've done because I'm no longer guilty. I want to help others. I want others to have that breakthrough. They deserve it. They need it. You don't have to punish yourself for the rest of your life or let others punish you. I've had other people Mm. who know of my situation, and they try to bring it up, but I tell them, you know, I'm not living in my past. I have a bright Mm. future. I have an awesome present, but I'm working toward the future and helping others to work toward an awesome, blessed future. And, I mean, that's that's my goal. And as Kaplan Aisha said, it's not only – um, you showing your bravery, it's our duty as post-abortive women who are healed or healing to help others to get to the point that we are, where we are, because it's going to speak volumes. It's, there's going to be a change. I know it. And if I can help make that change, that is my desire. That is, that is my, that is my, that's what I want to do, and that's what I'm going to do in life. Because I don't want anybody else to go through what I've gone through. I have a daughter, and I never, ever, as long as I have the breath in my body, want her to go mm-hmm. through that. And I won't let her amen. go through that. Amen and amen again. Well, thank you so much for sharing. Uh, we're going to talk to you again on Pro Life Fridays Radio. Um, thank awesome. you for coming on today and sharing You're your welcome. story. Uh we need people, I mean, America needs people like you. We need people like you to to speak out. And thank God you have found your voice and found the ground to stand on in order to do that. Thank you so much. Oh, you're welcome. Thank you for having me. God bless. Okay, God bless. We'll talk to you again. Bye. And ladies and gentlemen, that is that is the ground floor of of the abortion debate. It isn't about bodily rights. It isn't about women's health. It isn't about uh, the right to do whatever you want to do with your body. It's none of those things that liberals are feminists and and pro-abortion supporters just croon about endlessly. It isn't because at the end of the day, there is a human being that has to walk into an abortion clinic and make that decision that's going to affect the rest of her life. And often, Often, this this woman, girl, even most of them, many of them teenagers. Most abortions happen in in women under age of twenty five, uh, twenty under thirty five, I should say. Um, 
she's going to be alone and she's afterward whereas there are so many voices as we've heard from our two guests today the voices before they've gotten an abortion are numerous telling them uh what to do how to how to go about getting an abortion all all that stuff and ladies and gentlemen you know it, it is it is so unfair to women to say that it's 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 my body, my choice. When really, uh, for many of them, the choice was already made. The choice already made by those that they were supposed to trust uh, closest to them, either by a boyfriend or their mothers or their sisters or their family or their fathers. Making that choice to abort, not that person. And as you can see, I'm I'm fairly certain that most of the girls, when they're alone, sitting in an abortion clinic, get having that time to think, do want to get up and leave, and and they're told that it's too late, or they're told that um, they don't have a choice. Well, suddenly it's not a choice anymore. Um, so this is the this is the evil irony, I think, of the push to abort not and it goes beyond it goes beyond not respecting the life that has been created and is being nurtured in pregnancy it's it's beyond that it's so easy to say oh well they don't have a respect for life no they don't but i think it's beyond that i think it is an ultimate abuse of a woman to say that what is natural that is happening to her uh, is 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 somehow disposable. It's evil, and it's worth a monetary value to dispose of that person in her womb. Never mind how she thinks about it. Um, so that's very sad, and that is the truth. That is the ground level truth of what is happening so many women here in America who who are forced into abortion. Maybe not at the point of a gun, but certainly at every other immaterial gun at relatives and friends' disposal. I mean, this is the same story that uh, one of my friends had when she was in college and she found herself pregnant. Not one person, she said, came to say, well, how can I help you um, carry your baby to term and give you what you need? She said the only question she was ever asked was, are you going to keep it? And when are you going to abort? The others weren't even questions. The others were, well, you're going to abort. And when are you going to abort? And you can't keep this baby. And you're a single mom. You'll be a single mom. And not there were no affirmations of her as a woman, her strength and ability as a a strong woman who is able to do these things. I mean, if you certainly can go through college, you can't take care of a child. I mean, the differences are are tantamount to nothing. If you can if you can live your life, you can take care of a child if you have and use the God given gift you have 
and shame on the pro-abortion supporters. Abortion supporters. Shame on pro-death for telling women. I've been going crazy on my Facebook wall. If you haven't checked it out, you don't even have to friend me. Everything I write is public. I've been going crazy this week because I've been so frustrated with the pro-abortion message telling women they can't do something that is absolutely natural to our bodies and our abilities. I've been just going crazy because that kind of disempowerment is the kind of disempowerment that pro-abortionists claim to be something they're against. Yet they're the ones that are driving the nails into the coffin. So I am sick and tired. I am so sick and tired of the hypocrisy. And, and hypocrisy doesn't even begin to scratch the surface. And, and so let me end with um, the stupidest thing ever, which is not funny this, this time around. Uh, I wish it were, but we're going back to the story about Plan B. And it is the stupidest thing ever because the story is the Walgreens – CVS, Rite Aid um, have moved the Plan B drug from inside the pharmacy counter out to the open shelving. That was the announcement on CNS News. It says, and after the judge's ruling in April that says that made Plan B available without a prescription <coughs> to, to girls under the age of 17, Supposedly, it's supposed to start at 15, but what are what are Walgreens employees going to do? Check ID to make sure you're 15? It's ridiculous. It's absurd. But now that they've these three drugstore chains have moved Plan B out into the open aisle, you know, next to the condoms, next to the cold medicine, next to the Band-Aids, so that anybody can buy a plan B. How this discussion has not reached that level of common sense, I don't even know. Even so many people who are pro-life have been locked up in this discussion over whether or not it's about age, 15 or 17, 15 or 17, girls, girls. It is not about girls. How many men? are going to walk into a Walgreens and buy Plan B because they're trying to hide the fact they're sexually molesting 12- and 13-year-olds or 10-year-olds or sometimes even 9-year-olds who can get pregnant. Oh, my goodness, I never thought of that. Well, you should have. Hello, wake up, America. The Plan B drug is a gateway. It's a gateway drug, pardon the pun. It's not marijuana, but it's a gateway drug to more abuse of women. And thank you again, liberals, for showing how hypocritical and backwards and opposite-minded you are. This Plan B is supposed to be some kind of fictional liberation for women, but what it is is going to be able for is going to allow sick and immoral men to enslave more girls. Thank you for the liberation. All the way from the 1960s and the 70s. Thank you for the liberation. 
So that, ladies and gentlemen, is the stupidest thing ever. Um, and you're stupid if you think that anything a liberal says about reproductive health or choices or health care or women's health that has anything to do with abortion, abortion drugs, is actually for the good of women. Don't buy the lie. Well, for, ladies and gentlemen, that brings our broadcast of Pro-Life Fridays this week to a close. Before I get any more worked up than I already am, Thomas, would you like to say goodnight? Yep. Uh, I'd like to say goodnight to everyone. Um, continue to lift me up in prayers. I'm waiting to it gets closer to time for me to go to bed so I can take some of these NyQuil type of Alka-Seltzer things so I can actually sleep. So, so I'm hanging on with the fever, so keep me in prayer. And I just oh, want to say to my, I want to say also to my friend Shannon, thank you so much. And we want you back next week because we're going to dedicate the entire show to you and the work that you're doing. Because you know what? Just remember this. Do not allow liberal, even family, to define the work that you're doing. And I know that you don't. Because you just you just got it going on. So God bless you all and I wanna say good night. Amen. Well everybody, that's Pro Life Friday's radio for this week. Thank you for joining us. Catch you in the archives for all our archive audience. Thank you for joining us there too. Have a good week. We'll see you back next week. Race don't matter like place don't matter like what's inside If the kick drum kick one time Breathe out, let your mind unwind Eyes on the ceiling, looking for the feeling Wide open, let your own eyes shine Yes, where the fight begins Yeah, underneath the skin Beneath these hopes and where we've been Every fight comes from the fight within Side by side, don't matter like race, don't matter.